0: Hello, everybody. It's our great privilege to be back together to study the Word of God together this weekend. And if you may notice, I'm back in the sanctuary preaching from the pulpit once again. It's been a long time. Um, and, uh, standing up and preaching has been something that I haven't done in a while. So I'm looking forward to this, an opportunity today to bring you a message from the Word of God. And if you've been following us, I'll start with just a little bit of an introduction, uh, starting Last week, we started a series that we are calling Summer in the Psalms, and what we're going to do is Pastor Justin and I are going to take uh, several different psalms throughout the summer. We'll be going now all the way through August, and we'll take a psalm that we see in the book of Psalms, and we will uh, talk about what it means not only at the time it was written, but also how we can apply it to our lives and how it can give us comfort during these hard times. And so we're going to do that, and today uh, I'm going to be in Psalm 2. Now last week, uh, Justin started with Psalm 1, and we're going to continue on with 2 this week. But uh, just as he mentioned last week, that doesn't mean we're going to go all the way through all the psalms, and it doesn't mean we're going to go in order. We're going to pick and choose as we go, uh, and each of us will have some different ones that we will take throughout the summer as we go through the psalms. So we're excited that you are going to be able to join us for this series and hopefully it'll give you a lot of encouragement, uh, a lot of hope, uh, and it'll just lead you through these times that we are in right now. So, a little bit of introduction to remind you of what you looked at last week uh, with Pastor Justin, and then also a little bit of a glimpse of where we're going today. We remember last week that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 uh, very well could be all part of one idea. Uh, that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are meant to be read together, uh, and Pastor Justin explains some of the reasons why for that. I'm going to give a little bit of uh, a review here. Uh, Psalm 1 and 2 serve as a prelude to the whole book of Psalms. Psalm 1 and 2 are kind of like the, the introductory portion of the book, and then we're going to get into the five books of Psalms that are going to go through all of the chapters in which we see David as well as so many others who write these beautiful Psalms. And we'll look at those as we go through this series. But we remember that Psalm 1 and 2 is kind of this introduction, it's a prelude, and we see that through a couple different things, but one of the main things is we see that Psalm 1 starts by saying, blessed is the man, and then at the end of chapter 2, we're going to see that it ends by saying, blessed are all those who take refuge in him. And so these bookends are on each side. And so what we start seeing is this theme developing in one and two that I believe will introduce us to the themes that will be explored later throughout the book. And that is, how can we be blessed? How can we be blessed? How can we be, as we remember from last week, congratulated? Uh, some translations would translate it happy. How can we live a life that is congratulated by God, a life that is happy and fulfilled? How can we live that life? And Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 start us on that journey. But I do believe that these two chapters do introduce to us, as I said, the themes that will be explored later throughout the book. Uh, we're going to see that this theme of blessedness, we're going to see this theme come up over and over and over again, all the way through the book of Psalms. And this introduction we have here is just a glimpse of what we, we will, where we will be going. And so we think about all of this, and we now get into uh, what the context and purpose of the Psalms were. So let's start there, and, and Pastor Justin talked about this a little bit last week. And uh, if you uh, have been following our devotionals online, Thursday's devotion uh, was all about how to read the Psalms. And it will give you an idea of the context and the reason that Psalms was written. And so I would highly encourage you, if you haven't seen that one yet, go back to our YouTube page and look that one up. Uh, because it'll be great uh, introduction and influence for you as we go forward. But we do see a couple ideas about the book of Psalms. First of all, it is a song book of prayers. Uh, The word psalm is the ancient way of talking about a song. It's something that would be sung. They're poems, and it is a book of prayers. And so we need to understand that that's what the psalms were written to be. But then also it was organized, the book of Psalms was organized in a way that it would bring hope to exiles, specifically exiles from Israel who had been exiled and, and needed hope. And the Psalms were their prayer book, their song book that they could go to to sing and to remember uh, God's goodness, to remember all the bad things that have happened to them and to be uh, broken over that, but then to look to God and trust in him. And so this book was written as a book of psalms, a book of songs, a book of prayers for people who are in exile who need hope. And even though we aren't the primary audience where and when it was written as it was going to Israel and it was going to be funneled through them. But also for us, it can give us great hope during all of our times, whether we feel like we're in a time of exile uh, or whether we just feel like we're in a time of uh, despair or Fill in the blank, however we may feel. We can look to the book of Psalms to help us give us hope. And so we're going to be continuing through this as we see that this is going to give hope. And Psalm 1, that we looked at last week, introduces this idea that there is a right road to follow and a wrong road to follow. Uh, Go back and watch last week's sermon if you haven't yet, and you will see in Psalm 1, It is very clear uh, that there is a right road that will lead to blessedness and a wrong road that will lead to destruction. See, as we looked at this last week, the righteous road, the, the good road, the right road is troubled. It's troubled. It's the tribulation road. But it is blessed. It's blessed. It is congratulated. It is fulfilling. But the wicked road, the wrong road, is roomy. It might be roomy, but it is destructive. And we talked about that as Jesus talked about, roads to follow, and how the roads to follow that are talked about here in Psalm 1 are very clear. There is a right road and a wrong road, a way of the wicked and a way of the righteous. And we are called to walk in the way of the righteous and be blessed. So Psalm 2 uh, is a continuation, as we've already talked about, of Psalm 1. And the same theme comes out very clearly. In Psalm 2, it zeroes in on what it looks like to walk on the wrong road and to walk on the right road. Uh, We're going to see that the wrong road is a road of rebellion. The wrong road that will lead to destruction is rebellion. While the right road that leads to blessedness is one of finding refuge in God. That's what we're going to be looking at in Psalm 2. So the question we need to ask ourselves today as we look at this passage is, which road are you on? Which road do you want to be on? The road uh, that is of refuge that will bring us blessedness, or the road of rebellion that will bring us destruction? The answer seems simple, and yet how we live will show how we answer this question. And as we get into this passage, I I was thinking about how to illustrate what we're going to look at. And basically what we're going to see is God is going to be very clear. Uh, this is the wicked road, and this is where it's going to lead. And, and this is the righteous road, and this is where it will lead. And, and the thing that's basically being asked in the question here in Psalm 2, uh, it starts with the questions. It says, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Uh, this question is being asked, and basically what the question is, is who are you going to put your bet on? You know, I think about how people bet for uh, sports and they usually want to bet on the person or the team that they think is going to win. I remember the scene from uh, Back to the Future, and I haven't seen it in a while, but I remember that uh, as they're in the future, they they get a hold of, uh, of a sports book that tells them who's going to win the different championships. We also get a glimpse to see, which is my favorite part of the movie, that the Chicago Cubs at that point won the World Series, which was a crazy thought at the time. And the idea then is when they went back to the past, they were able to use that sports book to make a, a fortune, uh, because they knew who was going to win ahead of time and they knew who to bet on. Now imagine how foolish it would be if they, if we had a sports book like that. We, we had a sports book from next year, let's say, that we knew who was going to win every single game in every single season. That's if sports ever come back. But when they do, uh, we know who's going to win. We know how it's going to go. And we go to place a bet, which, by the way, I'm not uh, condoning betting. Please don't take it that way. But if we were to go take, make a bet and we bet on the team that we thought was going to or the team that was going to lose, that just wouldn't make any sense. It's foolish. We would bet on the team that we know is going to win. Well, here's the thing as we come to Psalm 2. The psalmist here, David, as we're told in Acts, is the writer of this psalm. And what we see him saying is, it is foolish to fight against the winner of all time. God is the undisputed champion of the world. He is the king of the world. He is the sovereign one over all the world. And therefore, we need to make sure that we are not betting against him and not working against him, but instead coming alongside and submitting to him. Now, I've got ahead of myself, so I've already given you the main theme of what we're going to look at here in Psalm chapter 2, but the ridiculousness of placing a bet on the losing side is something I want you to remember and keep in your mind as we look at Psalm chapter 2 today. The first thing we look at as we come to this psalm is the wrong road of rebellion. And we'll look at that in the first three verses. But before we do that, would you join me this morning even before we get to breaking this apart and reading the whole of Psalm chapter 2. In Psalm 2, we read this. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves uh, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. So this was Psalm chapter 2. We read it in its entirety. And so let's start by looking at the first three verses, the wrong road of rebellion. Here in this passage, we see that the nations rage and plot against God himself. The nations decide to take a fight against God. They are raging against him. This is this is the imagery, the wording is getting us to think about this anger that they feel that is then going to be fleshed out in the way they act and in the way they speak. And they're angry with God, and so they rage against him and they plot against him This is the essence of rebellion. They don't believe God, and so their anger becomes an action of rebellion. They choose to rebel against God, the creator God, the one who is in control of all things, which we'll see in just a moment, and they choose to fight against him. And so this psalm, as we read this, it says, why would people do this? It doesn't make any sense. Like I just talked about, why would they rage and plot against God, the maker of everything? And it doesn't make sense, but yet that's exactly what people do. In times, isn't it something that maybe we've done in the past where we have fought against God? Uh, So we think about all this and we see uh, a a connection here. Remember last week we looked at the way of the wicked and the way of the righteous. And and as we look at these uh, these people, the nations, and how they rage against God, I'm going to point back to chapter 1 as we see how these things relate, how the way of the wicked now is being fleshed out even further for us to see. And so first of all, we see that as the nations rage and plot against God, they are sitting in the seat of the scoffers. Chapter 1, verse 1 talks about that the righteous man doesn't sit in the seat of the scoffer, but that's exactly what the nations are doing as they rage and plot against God. They are scoffing against God, again showing their wickedness, showing they are walking in the wrong way. The next part here in uh, chapter 2, in verse 2, the kings of the earth set themselves and rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. So now we see that the kings of the world are set against Yahweh and his anointed. The word anointed here should remind us of any time that we would, that Israel would anoint a king. It would be a way of setting them apart uh, to rule and to reign. And who is God's anointed? Who is Yahweh's anointed? Well, the word for anoint uh, is the same root word for Messiah, which in the New Testament would become the word Christ. And so we obviously see that even here in the book of Psalms, long before Jesus comes onto the scene, there's a beautiful picture and a prophecy that says right here that the world is going to not only rebel against Yahweh, the Lord of all, they're going to rebel against the Messiah who is coming, the Christ who is coming. And we'll talk a lot about that as we move on through this psalm. And so we see that the kings have set themselves against Yahweh and his anointed. And here we even see it says that they uh, have taken counsel together. Remember back to chapter 1, verse 1. It says, the, the man, the, righteous, the one walking on the righteous road, uh, does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. But yet we see the kings here doing exactly that. They are on the wrong road. And it didn't just stop there. We see then in verse three, it says, what they're saying as they come against God is this, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. What is it that the nations and the kings of the world, which by the way, as we talk about kings, this is not just about the rulers. This is about the people they represent. The people of the world rage against God. The people of the world say, we don't want these bonds anymore. We don't want these cords anymore. It's this imagery that they are bound up and they want their freedom. And so we see that the rebels here want their freedom. And You'll see I put freedom in quotes here because the truth of the matter is the freedom that they think they want isn't actually freedom. By removing themselves from the powerful hand of God, they are opening themselves up for destruction. And so they, again, then we see, but going back to chapter 1, what are they doing? Well, they are standing in the way of sinners. They are sinning against God by wanting to do their own thing, by living a selfish life, by exploring freedom at the, at the expense of others and at the expense of their own good. And that is the essence of sin when we turn away from what God says because we think we know better. And that is exactly what these people are doing, the kings and the nations. What are they doing? They are coming together in sin, and they are standing in the way of sinners. They are walking in the counsel of the wicked. They are sitting in the seat of the scoffer. And so if there's any question, if there's a connection between chapter 2 and chapter 1, we see it right here. So this first road we talk about is a wrong road of rebellion, and the truth of the matter is, the rebels, when they want freedom, what they really want is they don't want accountability. They don't want to answer for their actions, and they want to be in control of their own lives. They no longer want to be shackled. In other words, they want to be free to do whatever they wish to do. And as I said, this is not true freedom. This will be freedom that will lead them to destruction. And so this is the wrong way, the wrong road of rebellion. So then the question comes as we go through this psalm, if this is the wrong road of rebellion, uh, how is God going to respond? How is God going to respond to the one who is walking on the wrong road? Well, that's what we'll see here. God's response to the road of rebellion in verses 4 through 9. So the first thing we see in, chapter, in this chapter, verse 4, it says, He who sits in the heavens, this is obviously Yahweh, God the Creator, laughs. The Lord, the Master, holds them in derision. So we see that we start, how does God respond? Well, Yahweh laughs at the ridiculousness of rebellion. He laughs at the ridiculous of re- ridiculousness of rebellion. Now, this does not just mean that he's got this hearty belly laugh and he's physically, literally laughing. Uh, what this whole thing gets to as we look at Hebrew imagery is the mockery of basically showing how ridiculous it is to rebel against him. Rebellion is absolutely useless, and it is absolutely foolish. I thought of this as I read this. Like, When have I laughed like this to kind of say, "This you are so foolish right now? And there's been some times, if you're a father, that maybe your kids, and I'm specifically thinking of my sons many times, who will challenge me. And sometimes they'll challenge me physically. Like uh, there's been times where Noah has come up to me and he'll raise his fist like we're going to have a fight. And, and and it's funny. I laugh at that because I think there's no way your little six-year-old body is going to be able, if we really were to fight, you would never have a chance to beat me. It would never happen. Uh, it even happens with like board games, uh, you know, and and they'll come to me with like the game of chess. Noah wants to play chess with me and he expects that he's going to be able to win. And inside, what I'm doing is basically laughing, saying, you don't even stand a chance. And that's what God is saying. As he laughs, he's saying, you don't even stand a chance. What are you thinking? And it's not that it's funny. It's this it's this understanding that he is mocking them in a sense of saying, who are you to think that you can challenge me? This makes no sense. And God understands that this makes no sense and it is completely ignorant. And so... Uh, then we see what goes on after that. He says he's going to laugh and he's going to expose their ignorance. Uh, and then this derision idea, he's going to mock them and he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in fury. The next thing we see here is that Yahweh will judge rebellion in wrath and in fury. There is no question, rebellion will be answered. Justice will be laid out and God will bring judgment upon those who choose to rebel against him. This is promised here in uh, Psalm two. It's promised throughout Scripture, and so we see here another connection, even back to the last chapter. Later on in this passage, we haven't got there yet, but we, as we think about judgment, what we're told in a couple verses here is we're told in verse nine it says that when judgment comes, that people that the people who are on the wrong road will they they will be dashed in pieces like a potter's vessel. Dashed in pieces, think of a vase and just being completely destroyed and crushed and blown away and pushed away, and it has no power. Uh, It goes back to another image in chapter 1, in chapter 1, verse 4, that talks about how the wicked person is like chaff that the wind drives away. The understanding is it's just, there's no hope. It's got no control. It's gone. It's destroyed. And we see that that judgment is coming. Uh, in verse in chapter 1 verse 6 it goes on and says that the way of the wicked will perish now back in chapter 2 as we continue to read we see in verse 12 the same thing is mentioned i know we've got ahead of ourselves we haven't read this yet but in in chapter uh, 2 verse 12 uh, what we see it says lest he be angry and you perish in the way again the understanding here is that god is going to bring judgment and that judgment is going to bring uh, and death. It's going to bring the the fact that you will perish. You will be separated from God. You will be removed. You will be destroyed. That is the judgment that is coming to the person who rebels against God. They will not win against him. They cannot come up against him because he will be the victor and he will judge them. And so we see that happening here in verse 5. And then we see a beautiful picture of the final thing that Yahweh is going to do in response to the rebellion of the nations, to the rebellion of people. And this is what he says. Uh, he says here um, in verse 6, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. What we're told here is that Yahweh will anoint a king of kings to put an end to all rebellion in verses 6, six through 9. This king that he announces He's going to send a king that would be the king over all other kings, a king that would put an end to rebellion. That's what is coming. And so we then he starts talking about this king for a few verses here in Psalm 2. It's going to be very clear to us who are Christians who this king is. You already know who this king is. But let me just explain to you what Psalm 2 says about who this king is that is coming to exact God's judgment on the wicked and on the rebellious. Well, we, first of all, in, in verse 7, we see the king is the son of God. In verse 7, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, Yahweh said to me, and this is the anointed one speaking, and he says, You are my son, today I have begotten you. God says to this king, You are my son, and I have begotten you. So we see this king that will come to set all things right and to judge rebellion is the very son of God, one who is begotten of God. And this isn't about uh, physically being born. This is the, the idea of sonship, is the idea that, that God uh, is giving the right to this king to be his representative in this world, to represent him completely to the world around us. That there is a relationship here that is intimate, but also a relationship of representation. That this king would represent God, represent him through judgment on the world. When we read the Son of God, that's this idea of being begotten. He's being fathered. He's The point is this relationship and this connectedness that the Son is like the Father, and the Son will go and do what the Father asks. And that is the point. And we see that throughout all of the New Testament uh which is getting us more and more close to seeing who this king is but before we get there another thing in verse 8 and 9 that we see that this king will do we see that um, this king will rule all nations it says here ask me and i will make nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel here in this passage we see that this coming king is going to rule all the nations All the kings of the world and all the peoples of the world will be ruled by Yahweh's king, by the Messiah, by the anointed one, by the Christ. And we see that that's going to happen here. It's promised here. And then it says, you shall break them with a rod of iron. This word break also just really gets to the point of ruling. That's what this word means. It's to rule or to shepherd. Uh, It's the idea of, of really ruling and overseeing. Um, the nations, and this king will do that. And so that's the next thing we see. And then also in, in verse 9, the second part of verse 9, says, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. We already talked about this. This is judgment imagery. This is talking about the judgment of God, and what we're told is the king, the coming anointed king, will be the one who will bring judgment upon the nations, judgment upon the rebellious And so we see this all being true. So if the king is the son of God, and this king will rule all nations, and this king will bring judgment, then what we're going to see very clearly as we take a moment to look at the rest of the Bible to see who this king is, that this king is none other than Jesus. Jesus, who came to this earth as a baby on Christmas Day to live a perfect life that we couldn't live, to die on the cross for our sins, to rise again, to defeat sin and death for all time, and to show that his sacrifice was worthy. This is the king that was prophesied all the way back in Psalm 2 by David, who knew that there would be one coming from his line, and that person, that would be the Messiah and that Messiah would be the anointed king that would bring all of these things, that would be the son of God, that would rule all the nations, and that would bring judgment. Uh, so uh, the king is Jesus. And if you have any questions about whether that's true or not, uh, all we have to do is look at the book of Acts. Uh, and we're going to look at the book of Acts this this morning, this evening, whenever you find yourself watching this. In Acts chapter 4, uh, verses... Uh, 24 through 30. And then we're going to skip over to chapter 13 as well. And this is the New Testament. This is when Jesus is being preached throughout the world. And we find ourselves in Acts chapter four and Peter is preaching. And this is what he says in Acts four, starting in verse 24 through 30. All right. And this is what we see. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon the threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. So this is the prayer of the disciples. This is the prayer of the believers at this time, as they pray to God, they they make the connection. As Luke writes this in the book of Acts, they specifically quote Psalm 2. And it says, this servant, the one that is being talked about in Psalm 2, it says very clearly here in Acts 4, is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the king that Psalm 2 talks about. Again, though, later in the book of Acts, uh, we see in uh, in a later chapter, chapter 13, what we're going to see here uh, is another reference to this in in verses 32 and 33. So in verses 32 and 33, it says this, And we bring you the good news. And what is the good news? That God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also as it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, Today I have begotten you. A second time in the book of Acts, Psalm 2 was quoted, attributing it straight to Jesus. So who is this king? Well, the king is Jesus. A couple of other things that we could talk about. So remember the three things that we said this king would be like. We said that the king would be the son of God. Well, the New Testament talks about Jesus being the son of God. Uh, obviously, if you've been part of church for any time, you know that that's true. And, and we uh, continue to see this. And I want to point out one specific passage today in the book of Hebrews, uh, book of Hebrews chapter one. And in this section, we see that God, that God has made Jesus, talks about him being his son, the one who would rule, the one who would represent him to the world and to the nations. So Hebrews 1, 1 through 5 says long ago, and at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Again, as we look at this, we see... That it he the book the writer of Hebrews goes right back and attributes what was said in Psalm two about this king being the son that is begotten by God the one who would be the exact imprint of his nature the representative of God in this world and he says who is this it's Jesus so we see that that happens here in Hebrews so there's no question that that first thing that Psalm two says about uh, who the king will be the son of God that is Jesus. Uh, we, the next thing we saw was that they would, that this king would rule the nations. We don't have to go any further than looking at the back of the, the story, the end of the story, the back of the Bible to look at how Jesus is the one who is the ruler over all nations. Uh, and we look specifically at Revelation 1 verse 5. Maybe we can start there. As John writes, he, this is what he says about Jesus. He says, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of all kings on the earth. Who is the ruler of the earth? It is Jesus. John says this very clearly later on in the book of Revelation, and we'll look at this a couple different times. But in Revelation chapter nineteen, what do we see here in nineteen verses eleven through sixteen? Then it says, "Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war." His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury and the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Again, Revelation points out that this king who is going to rule the nations is Jesus. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And then the last thing was that this king would bring judgment, if we remember that. Well, what we just read, when we think about judgment... When we, 19, in, in, Revelation 19, verse 11 starts by telling us right off the bat, says the one that's sitting on, on the white horse is faithful and true in righteousness. What does he do? He judges and makes war. Later on, it talks about the judgment that he will bring, that he will tread the winepress of the fury and wrath of God the Almighty. Remember the last time we used the words wrath and fury? Psalm 2. Again, who is the one that'll bring the wrath and fury of God? It's the king. It's the Messiah, it's the anointed one, it is Jesus himself. And so these things become very, very true. You can also look to Matthew uh, chapter 25, and in that passage, Jesus himself talks about how he will be the one that will bring judgment. And so we see that this king that Psalm 2 talks about is no doubt, no question, Jesus himself. And that judgment will come as God brings judgment, as he laughs, as he brings judgment, and as he gives his king to the world to rule over nations and put away all rebellion. So, so far we've seen then that the wrong road of rebellion is only going to lead to judgment and destruction. And so then we need to look at that right road. We've looked at the wrong road. So what is the right road that leads to blessedness? If the wrong road of rebellion leads to destruction, what is the right road of blessedness? Well, the last three verses in Psalm chapter 2 will show us exactly what we need to do to walk on the right road that will lead towards blessedness. And what we're going to see is we need to follow the right road of refuge, that the right road that leads to blessedness is to take refuge in God and specifically even take refuge in his anointed. So back in Psalm 2 where we've been in these last three verses Uh, It starts off and says, okay, now now I've told you all this, and then it's going to, in verses 10, 11, 12, it's going to tell us what the right road would look like and how people should respond to God's rule. Uh, But at the very end, in verse 12, this is where I'm going to start, and then I'm going to go back. But it says right at the end, blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Congratulated, happy, fulfilled are all those who take refuge in him. This is the right road to take refuge in God. So that's verse 12. But now, I, I want to talk about this word for a few minutes before we move on. The word refuge and the idea that refuge is, the, the root word in Hebrew is found over 40 times throughout the book of Psalms. The word refuge and the idea of refuge is going to come out again and again as we go through the book of Psalms. Because when we look At refuge we see what we need to have and that hope that we can have by making God our refuge. So what is a refuge? Well, it's a place that we can find shelter, protection, and security during hard times. You see, God doesn't promise absence of trouble in our life, but he does promise to be our shelter during the storms of life. As I thought about this, I think about one of my biggest fears, and I don't know why because I've never been around one, but one of my biggest fears is tornadoes. I don't know why, but for the longest time, maybe it's because I watched too much Twister movies when I was younger, but I'm afraid of tornadoes. And so anytime there's a big thunderstorm or, or, uh, or heaven forbid we hear on, my, I get the little notification on my phone that says there's a tornado warning, I freak out. It, you know what gives me comfort? Uh, you know, obviously I pray, you know, and that gives me comfort. But really what I want to do is I want to run to my basement. I want to run to my basement and get shelter from the storm because if that tornado hits, I want to be prepared. And when I'm down in the basement, when I'm protected from the storm, then all of a sudden the stress and the anxiety goes away because I know I'm in a place of safety, a place of protection, a place of comfort. Now, even in that, I understand that I might lose my house, I might lose other things, but if I'm where I can be safe, then I feel comfort and I can trust in my basement. Now, We can't always trust in our basement, but we can always trust in God. Just like we'd run to the basement during a tornado, we should run to God when we face the storms of life. Because he is our refuge. He is our shelter. He is the one that gives us comfort and security during the hard times of life. Don't look to anything else or anyone else, but look to Jesus. Look to God and ask him to help you to be your refuge. So ultimately, when we talk about refuge, it's pointing to the fact that our hope, our comfort, and our trust needs to be in God and God alone. And this will be a recurring theme throughout the book of Psalms. So keep watching for it as we go through the different Psalms. We will see this idea of refuge become so clear. So if we are to be congratulated and blessed and happy and fulfilled by finding refuge in God, if that's true, then how do we do that? Well, let's go back and look at verses 10 and 11 and 12. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. So what does it look like to find refuge in God? Well, first of all the, the command here after understanding that God is the one who's in control and he's the one that's going to control this world, judge this world, rule this world, that his king is going to come and rule. Then what we need to do, it says kings, and obviously this is referring to anyone, be wise and be warned. So my first thing to say, if we want to find refuge in God is to be wise. To be wise and not to live a foolish life. And that's going to be talked about in Psalms, it's talked about in Proverbs, it's talked about in wisdom literature. What does it mean to be wise? It means to follow God. It means to trust in him. It means to walk with him. That is wise. Foolishness is what they were doing at the beginning of this passage. Fighting against God, rebelling against God, going our own way and trying to grasp control away from God, that is a foolish way of living and that's why God laughed at them. And so we need to make sure that we are wise, that we live a life in which we follow God, we walk with him and we don't fight against him and rebel against him or try to take control into our own hands, but let him be in control and trust him through it. So we need to be wise. Don't fight a battle you can't win. Don't make a bet that you're going to lose. You Follow God. Walk with him. Be wise and not foolish. The next thing we read here in verse 11, it says, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. The word serve here is the Hebrew word that often can also be translated worship. And so what is being said here? Well, if we're going to find refuge in God, it's to worship Yahweh. It's to worship him to give him the honor and respect that is due him. He deserves our honor and respect, so we need to give it to him. And then it talks about rejoicing with trembling. We can have joy in the trembling, and this seems weird. How can you joy, have joy and tremble at the same time? Well, if you understand that God is in complete control and that brings you to a point where it actually makes you feel the weight of who God is, but yet you have found refuge in him, all of a sudden, the one who is so incredible is the one who is protecting you. And so we can be extremely confident and hopeful and trusting in God. And that's how we can rejoice. We can have joy in knowing that God's got us. He's got us in his hands. He's, everything is under control. That brings joy even in the trembling. And so we need to worship him by giving him honor and respect and being joyful through obedience to his sovereignty and finally then in verse 12 it says, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Kiss the son. Now the imagery I want you to think about here is uh, not uh, a kiss between like uh, on a wedding day between a husband and a wife. This is more referring to like kissing the ring of a ruler and kissing the ring with a symbol and what that meant was you were going to submit to the king. Uh, that you are going to uh, honor him, that you're going to submit to him, that you're going to follow him and obey him. That is what the kiss symbolizes here. It's loyalty. It is submission. And remember then, that we need to submit to him because why? Well, what we're told here is that the anger and wrath of God comes uh, through this king, through the Messiah, through Jesus. We can't mess around with that. You know, we should understand that. So many times we talk about God being a God of love and grace and mercy. And he absolutely is those things. But there is a part of God that is also angry and has wrath and jealousy. And that those things should draw us to the place where we need to run to him. And we need to take that seriously and not just cast it off like it's no big deal. And so we need to submit to him to submit to his ownership, to submit to his rulership, to submit to his sovereignty, to submit to his kingship in our life. That is how we find our way to being the blessed one who takes refuge in God. So how are we blessed? We are blessed by taking refuge in God, by submitting to Jesus, by worshiping God, by being wise and not foolish. And you're going to see all of this stuff come out even more details as we go through the book of Psalms. And some of you I know are reading through the book right now, and you will see these themes over and over again of refuge and hope. And this today is meant, this passage is meant to be a warning to the unbelieving world. No doubt about it. Psalm 2 is meant to be taken as a warning to the world who is rebelling against God, that God is going to bring judgment. And that should be something that as we read this, if you find yourself not in a relationship with Jesus, you're not uh, under the kingship of God, and you know that, and you're walking in your own ways, and you're living your own life, and you're living in your sin and your selfishness and in rebellion to God, if that's you, then you need to hear these words as a warning. Don't continue to walk the wrong road of rebellion. It only leads to destruction. Instead, walk the road of refuge and find refuge in Jesus. This also, though, is not just a warning, but it is also an encouragement for those who find refuge in Jesus. It's an encouragement to say that even when the world gets bad, God is good. God is your refuge. You're going to see throughout the book of Psalms, this is a theme that's going to come out over and over and over again and what the point of Psalms is, you're going to see a lot of Psalms that are very painful to read. There are lament Psalms, there's sadness, there's anger, there's depression, there's just a misunderstanding, there is a frustration that is going to be expressed to God about the world that we live in and how bad things have gotten. But in all of that, the book of Psalms pointed Israel towards the future and says no matter how bad it is now, you can have hope because what is coming is so much better. And the same thing can be true for us. As we read the Psalms, it's not just a way for us to see the bad of this world or to get us depressed or to get us angry with David or the other psalmist, but it's to point us to look to the future. It's to point us to look to Jesus, to trust in him as our refuge, no matter what this world brings. That's why the book of Psalms is such a book of hope, because it points to what is coming, that Jesus is coming to Israel. That's what they needed to believe. The Messiah is coming. We believe that the Messiah has already been here, but he's coming back. And that gives us hope in this world. My question then today is have you found refuge in Him? If you haven't found refuge in Him, if you haven't come to Him and received His gift of, uh, of love, received his gift of uh, of kingship that he's given. That he's saying, I want to be your king. All you need to do is submit to me. All we need to do is believe that Jesus lived that perfect life that we couldn't live, died a, a death on the cross that we deserved as our substitute, rose again to show that his sacrifice was the sacrifice that was needed, and that the kingship that he brings to this world, he's setting all things right, and we come to him and believe in him for that, and we turn away from our selfish way of living, and we turn towards Jesus, and we just beg him for 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 help, forgiveness, and salvation, and he will be there to give it to us. He will be our refuge if we only ask. So today, if he is not your refuge, find your refuge in Jesus. Ask him. Come to him in faith and repentance and call upon him. A couple more questions as we conclude. Are you today fighting against God's sovereignty for the sake of your own freedom? So many of us, when we get into a place where the world isn't the way we want it to be, we try to take things into our own hands. We try to control things. If, that, if this hasn't been fleshed out in your life during this whole coronavirus uh, pandemic, then uh, I don't know what will. Uh, we've watched the world go crazy because we can't control things like viruses. We can't. And we never will. We can't control everything. God is in complete control. We are not. And so my question to you today as we read Psalm 2, and you think about the rebels, those who rebelled against God, how foolish it is, even if you're a Christian today and yet you are finding yourself trying to grab control constantly and not letting God be the one that is driving your life, then you need to call out to him and repent and give it over to him. So don't fight against God's sovereignty. Fighting him is Foolish. It's betting on the wrong team. It's going the wrong direction. It's walking the wrong path. It's leading to destruction. Finally, the question I want to ask as we close together today is this simple question. At the end of the day, are you a rebel or are you a refugee? We use the word refugee a lot. And a lot of, and what it specifically means, if you look it up in the definition, it's a person fleeing to a foreign country or power to escape danger and persecution. But if we apply that in a spiritual sense, as we look to God for our refuge, we are to be refugees. We are to flee to a power to escape danger. We flee to God, not away from God, but we flee to God for protection and help and hope. Just like a refugee from another country might come to here or or go from one country to another to find hope, to find security, to find protection. That is what we need to be. So my call to all of us is not to be a rebel, but instead to be a refugee. And with that, let us close in prayer. Lord, I thank you for the reminder from Psalm chapter two that you have set all things right, that you are in control, that you are ruling. God, that it is foolish to rebel and it is the wrong way to follow. Help us to walk on the right road, to make you our refuge, to, to find our protection, our hope, our trust, everything in you and nothing else. Help us to do that. Help us to come to you and just beg you for your protection. Thank you for your sovereignty. Help us not to get so obsessed with our own freedom or our own control that we put you to the side, but help us to completely trust in you no matter what life brings, the good, the bad, the ugly. Lord, help us to trust you in all of it. So I pray all this today in Jesus' precious name. Amen.